0: After Jesus rose from the dead and he appeared in, in Galilee, he, com- he, he challenged and he commissioned and he commanded all of his followers to spread out into all the world and to make disciples, to, to go uh, to follow Jesus and to find other people and to help them follow Jesus. Years ago, I was in a Christian bookstore and I was spending a long time in a Christian bookstore. There, in the back of the store, was a display of little children's toys and trinkets and books for little primary kids. And our oldest son, Kyle, went back there and puttered around among the books and things. And then, after a while, he came out with this little book. It was like a block, it was just a little tiny square book, and it was, a, it was a primary reader biography of uh, Corey Ten Boom. And he said, can I buy this? It was like, I think it was a dollar. It was 49 cents. I'm sure. He was six or so and just learning to read, and I just bought him that little, little tiny book. And we went home, and I didn't think much about it. We were up in a family room that night. We were all doing our thing, and all of a sudden we heard a little noise over the corner of the room and we looked and it was little Kyle. he was sitting there with that little book and the tears were just running down his face and he was sobbing. And we said, "What is wrong?" And he said, "This is a sad story. This is a sad, sad story." And we said, well what made you cry?" He said, at the end, Corey dies and she goes up to heaven. And she's welcomed into heaven by Jesus. That made me cry. Something very, very powerful. Even among children about just a life of obedience of an ordinary person following through on what Jesus told us to do. And that's what we have in Philippians chapter 2. As we're making our way through this book, we're calling a series of messages as we preach through Philippians, Turning the Bethel Wheel. We could call it Insights on Making Disciples or Inspiration and Insights on how to follow Jesus and how to help other people follow Jesus. It's really kind of what we're all about in this world. It's what we will wish when we come to the end we had probably spent more of our time and effort and energy doing when we see our faith become sight. But what God has done is he's given us an example, a powerful example in Jesus Christ himself. And the heart of this book is Philippians chapter 2 verses 1 through 11, where Jesus himself is the example. And then right after that, the next section says, you go be lights in this world in this twisted and perverse generation. Be like Jesus, right? But then immediately after that, in mercy, Paul writes into the book and the Holy Spirit inspires Paul to write into this letter. And here are a couple of plain, ordinary guys that did just that. And you can take, we can kind of take a a collective sigh of relief and go, oh, that's what I need. I need to see that an ordinary man, I need to see that an ordinary woman, I need to see that an ordinary kid can follow Jesus and can help others follow Jesus. And that's exactly what you see. In the text, we're just taking this a chunk at a time. And the chunk that we're studying today refers to two men, Timothy and Epaphroditus, a couple of guys with a checkered past. Timothy comes from a family where there's a mixed marriage, a Greek and then eventually a Christian. And so there's the unbelieving dad, there's the Greek dad, and there's the believing mom and grandmother, and Timothy, no doubt, would have felt the tension of that growing up. And he might have felt growing up that that was a liability. But we're about to find out that it was actually a special preparation for the Lord, an asset. And then this other fellow with the long name, Epaphroditus, it's so long that it actually includes the name of a false god, a pagan goddess. And God raises him up and makes him very useful even though he's an ordinary guy. So in this letter that Paul writes from prison back to the church in Philippi, he's telling them, I'm, I would like to send you Timothy, and I'm going to send Epaphroditus back to you. And he's going to say how useful Timothy is, and he's going to commend Timothy to them. And he's also going to tell, he's going to say some very strong things about Epaphroditus, who actually came Uh, to uh, Paul with a gift from the Philippian church so this is Philippians chapter 2 and verse 19 I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare they all seek their own interest but not those of Jesus Christ But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that surely I myself will come also. Paul's saying, I hope to send Timothy soon. Timothy really cares about you. He's the only one I've found who has that selfless concern for you. It's quite a commendation. In verses 25 through 30, Paul's going to talk about Epaphroditus. I have thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother. And listen to what he calls him. My brother, my fellow worker, my fellow soldier, and messenger. That's the apostle word there. Sent one, messenger. Minister to my need, for he has been longing for you and all that has been distressed because You heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill near to death. In other words, Epaphroditus was burdened that he knew the people had heard that he was sick and didn't know that he was well. He was ill near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. In other words, I'm here in prison, and then losing this co worker, I would have been dual sorrow. Verse 28 I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again. That I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life, gambling his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. When you compare a passage like this to the passage that is in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, Chapter 2 and verses 1 through 11 is that great passage that describes Jesus coming down from heaven. It seems kind of plain vanilla, doesn't it? It seems kind of ordinary. But there's something to that. How many of you have discovered that it's sort of difficult to follow Jesus? If you haven't found it difficult, you're probably not doing it very well. Because if you take your New Testament and you just open it, and you begin to try to do what Jesus said, you're going to find that it's not difficult, it's actually impossible. That it actually requires supernatural aid. And to see the example of Jesus is encouraging in that he was God who became man, but it helps a lot to have these examples of of common and ordinary men, ordinary people, who were able to serve the Lord and who were commended for serving the Lord. In Timothy, you see an example of faithfulness. And later, Paul writes to Timothy in, in one of the epistles to Timothy, and he says, the things I taught you, I want you to commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others. And Paul uh, t- knew that Timothy had this faithfulness about him. And to turn the Bethel wheel, to turn the discipleship wheel, to make disciples and to help other people be disciples, to follow Jesus and the help follow Jesus, it requires common, ordinary people who, are, who repeat a simple faithfulness over and over again. It's like time to set up the tents again. <laughs> time to take the tents down again. It's time to go to the neighbor and c- cultivate that relationship again. It's a simple thing to bake those cookies, but it needs to be done. Simple faithfulness, the, 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 the beautiful, life-changing, miraculous, powerful ministry of the gospel goes forward on little cat's feet. It goes forward on little common things, little common things that people do. So here was Timothy. Why would Paul mention Timothy? I think you're getting the idea. I think one of the reasons was obviously he's wanting them to have confidence in other leaders, not just in himself. Timothy's going to be a key person. Young men are coming up. Young women are coming up. They need to have the confidence of the people. I I see this happening at Bethel. God in his providence is spreading us out, literally spreading us out. And we can resist that or we can cooperate with it. We can say, okay, Lord, in your providence, you spread us out a bit. Now, we can spend all our time complaining that we can't gather like we're so used to gathering really close, shoulder to shoulder, everybody's singing together. Maybe we'll get to do that again someday, but for now, we're scattered. And what we could do is we could lean into that. We could say, okay, Lord, you scattered us. Well, it looks like we're going to have to raise up more leaders, we're going to have to raise up more teachers, we're going to have to raise up more people that will open their homes to a, to a Jesus gathering. More people that will step up and lead a Jesus gathering. It's interesting, isn't it? That's exactly what's happening in the little church here in Philippi. Paul is saying, "Don't you know, I'm in prison, and I may or may not make it back, but here's Timothy. Now, it is interesting to me, too, as another insight, as I mentioned it before, if you use your sanctified imagination, and you really should do this whenever you read the Bible, imagine what it would be like growing up in Timothy's home. I imagine that sometime Timothy went to his room and he was playing his video games and he was just frustrated. I'm kidding about the video games. He was frustrated at the tension in his home. And maybe you have tension in your home. I don't really know anybody who doesn't. And if they do, I want to beat them up myself. Yeah, you got tension in your home. You have people that live in your home. And so you have things, you have stuff. Timothy had stuff. Dad's a Greek, mom and grandma are not. There's tension. Mom and grandma become Jesus followers. He becomes a Jesus follower, but he's an uncircumcised Greek who's going to start hanging out with Paul, and he's going to be going to the synagogue now. It's almost like wear a mask or not wear a mask. Oops, there, I said it. Isn't that interesting? It's analogous, a little bit analogous, right? Here is uh, Timothy, does the Bible command Timothy to be circumcised to be saved? No, thank you. Does the Bible command Timothy to be circumcised to be obedient to God? No, it's not a command. But what does Paul say to Timothy? Paul says to Timothy, I think since we're going to be going to the synagogue and the, the church is young, I think it would be a good idea for you to be circumcised. Everybody knows your dad's a Greek. The Bible literally says that. So Timothy is circumcised. Not because he had to be circumcised, but because he wanted to do something and show kindness so that he wouldn't, there wouldn't be an obstacle to the, to the gospel. The gospel was the thing. Now, now, think about this. Later on, Paul goes to the Jerusalem council, and the issue is, do Gentiles have to be circumcised? He brings Titus, who's a Gentile, an uncircumcised Gentile, with him, and he says to Titus, don't be circumcised. So in, in one sense, it's like, well, there are times that if you maybe are unwilling to be circumcised, you're kind of like not caring about other people. There are times that if you demand that somebody is circumcised, you're not caring about people. Now, you can put the mask in there and figure that out on your own. But there's an analogous thing there. Paul was preparing the people, and Timothy, who had this tension at home and learns to live with this tension, doesn't realize this is actually... God preparing him for his life calling. I love that. I wonder how many times you and I have been under a tension and thought, God, why would I have to live with this tension? Why would I have to live with this circumstance? Why can't I have a normal life? God may or may not answer you, but but I don't think he answered Timothy immediately, but There must have been a time when Timothy thought, huh, interesting how God uniquely prepared me to stand between two worlds, just like I grew up. And I believe that God has prepared you and I in a unique way to serve somewhere in his harvest, somehow, somewhere, you have a unique preparation from the Lord like Timothy did to be just where you are at just the right time for just those people that are there. And the pastor isn't there, the elders aren't there, just you. I believe that might be one reason why Paul brings up Timothy. He genuinely cares for the flock. He uses his mixed background to turn the wheel or make disciples or encourage people to follow Jesus. And then Epaphroditus, he commends him powerfully, uh, almost as if he's giving this special commendation to him, his endorsement. And Epaphroditus he says, was willing to, the, the word literally is gamble. He was willing to gamble with his life to turn the wheel of discipleship. He was willing to risk his life to put himself at the point, he was willing to sacrifice. Now here's, here's what the Spirit, I believe, tugged on my heart about this week. Uh, it went a little like this, and I, and I hope you'll do the same thing yourself instead of just enjoying me being on the divine shish kebab grill, right? And that, but, but I felt like, how much of my time do I spend arranging my own comforts? How much of my time do I spend arranging my own pleasures? How much of my time do I spend kind of organizing my own little kingdom for my own pleasure or for my, my own ease or for my own rest or for my own enjoyment? And, and Jesus is saying that's not the way to ultimate fulfillment. The way is to venture out, cross the street, reach the neighbors, invite somebody out, have a small group, invite somebody to church, give the gospel, write a letter, venture out, take a risk. This guy risks Epaphroditus risk his very life, and he's commended for that in Scripture forever. You think about that. If God wrote your name in the Bible and said you risked your life for the gospel, you could just pretty much die fulfilled right then, couldn't you? You could say, well, that's, a, that's accomplishment enough in my lifetime, but that's what he did. Now, here's a question. So we asked the question, you know, here we, we talked a little bit about Timothy and Epaphroditus, and we asked, why would Paul have written that in? Why would the Spirit have had Paul write that in? And we gave some suggestions. I'm sure there are more. But here's a really powerful and important question for us always to ask, when we look at the scriptures, and that is, why did God put that there for us? Why does that matter to us? Why are Timothy and Epaphroditus, I mean, wasn't it enough just to have Jesus as an example. Why Timothy and Epaphroditus? And I would suggest that, that, I would suggest that God wants us to have ex, ordinary examples, because this is a couple of things. Biography or stories are powerfully useful in teaching us in concrete ways Things that sometimes get lost when we just study them in the abstract. In other words, let me see what that looks like. Here's a person. Oh, I, okay, I see then, Lord, how it would be to follow you. A person like me, a person like you. Concrete examples, biography, if you will. And the Bible teaches in biographies, right? You have Hebrews chapter 11, all those little biographies. John Piper was a pastor in Minneapolis, had a pastor's conference every year. And every year he would study the life of a Christian that was greatly used to the Lord, an ordinary person who is used by the Lord in an extraordinary way. He would study their life and then he would give a talk, an hour-long talk to the pastors to inspire them. They are some of the most inspiring talks I've ever heard. One of them, my favorite, is called, You Will Be Eaten by Cannibals. You want to watch that one. I put links to those talks on the Bethel website in the sermon notes today. I put links to a bunch of really powerful biographies. If you love a good story and you want to be able to sleep with a clear conscience at night, you might not want to spend all your time trying to dig through the garbage on Netflix. You might read a good Christian biography and be inspired to live for God. Like, for instance, if you've never read A Man Called Peter and you love a good romance, and a good adventure, and a gospel story, and a story with beautiful pathos, a well-written story. Read A Man Called Peter. And you know, I could go on recommending books all day, right? Or if you're not like a reader, then now we, we live in a time when all over there are really powerful things that are done in video format for folks who just like to, to watch that. What I'm suggesting is this. This example of Timothy and Epaphroditus are telling us something, and that is that God wants us to be inspired by the stories of other ordinary people. And this might be something very powerful for you, as it was for my little boy Kyle. He's a pastor today. But I remember when he was a little six-year-old boy, weeping about a a story about a lady going to heaven. And so so it is with uh, biography. Hudson Taylor, I I was reading a a beautiful biography of Hudson Taylor when I was young. And I noticed that he was going to go to China. And so he was a great missionary pioneer in China, Hudson Taylor. And thousands of other people went to China. And there's a robust church in China today. In many cases, God used Hudson Taylor and the people that followed Hudson Taylor into China. But when he lived in England, what he decided to do, he was in preparation for going to China. He decided that what he would do is he would live in a very, very rough, poor end of town on purpose, even though he didn't need to. He would never ask for his pay. If they forgot to give him his pay, he would live without it until they asked him because he was trying to train himself to endure hardship. He made his diet, even though he had more, he he made his diet a diet of oatmeal every day because he wanted to prepare himself for hardship. He loved to go to the evening church service But he realized that when he was going to go to China, there wouldn't be a church on the corner unless he started one. And so instead of going to church on Sunday night, Hudson Taylor would go into the slums and he would go door to door evangelizing, talking to people about the Lord. I know that sounds extraordinary, but most of what happens in the lives of exemplary Christians that you read about is just regular people doing ordinary things with faithfulness, And God supplies the extraordinary. God's the one. You give a gift basket. God moves upon the heart of a person and nudges them closer to God. After you send that thank you note, God stirs their heart and does something that you could not have done through that thank you note, but God uses the thank you note. It's ordinary people for extraordinary times. So when extraordinary difficulties come, like the ones that we're in now, our tendency is to say, let's look around for some extraordinary people. But God isn't doing that. He's looking around for ordinary people that he can place into service in extraordinary times and use them in extraordinary ways. Just ordinary faithfulness. And we we understand this by recognizing that God, in a very short book, really, has taken a chunk of it to commend to us common men who served him. There was a woman once whose name was Sarah. Her I like her story because her last she's a relative. Her name was Sarah Pierpont. Sarah Pierpont had an unusual godliness about her. So you can imagine I like this story. And she married a pastor named John. You probably know him as Jonathan Edwards. Sarah Pierpont married Jonathan Edwards. And Jonathan Edwards was powerfully used of God, but his life was really short. And he was cut down really in his youth. And the people went to the diaries of Sarah Pierpont Edwards and they read what she said when her husband died young. And listen to what she said. When she heard that her husband Jonathan had died of smallpox at the age of 54, she wrote to her daughter and said, What shall I say? A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud today. Oh, that we may kiss the rod and lay our hands on our mouths, the Lord has done it. He has made us adore his goodness that we had him so long. But my God lives, and he is in my heart. What a legacy my husband, your father, has left to us. We are all given to God, and there I am, and there I love to be. You see, if you were going through a hardship or a difficulty, if you lost a loved one, how powerfully encouraging it would be to read biography of a person like that. That's what I'm talking about. There's a second reason, though, that I believe the Spirit would put these little miniature biographies in the Bible. One, because biographies inspire us to give us concrete tracks to follow in following Jesus. But here's another. This is the way God is intended for us to change and grow. God intent- it's a little bit like learning the English language. When you were little, I mean, everybody on the lot today knows the English language, right? To some degree or another. Some of you are very proficient, some not so much, but we all know that most of us are readers. Now, how did you learn the English language? Did you go to an English? Most of you did not go to an English class and start with grammar and diagram sentences and, and learn the parts of speech and conjugate verbs and study nouns and sentence structure, Right? It's, here's how you learn the English language. It started like this: say "mama," or in my house, hundreds of times over. Say "dad, dad, 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 dad," and then after a while, there would be that little uh, child saying that little word, and then, then, and then, then another word. How did you learn the English language? In a short, you learned it by imitating other people who were doing it. And the Bible teaches us that we learn by imitation. In other words, this is a very profound and simple thing. If you want a quality to be in your life, find somebody else who has that quality and get around them and admire them and imitate that. You say, well, no, no, no. I'm just supposed to admire Jesus. Yes, but Jesus is not physically here. And so this is what the word actually says. You, if you look online, I, I put all these notes online and I'm gonna read through them briefly just to show you an example The scriptures say, he who walks with wise men will be wise, but a companion of fools will be destroyed. Listen, who you admire and who you want to be like will either make you or ruin you. And God will supercharge that if it's for good, if you walk with wise men. Listen to some passages of scripture about how powerfully imitating others can actually help transform us through the power of the Spirit. Galatians 4.19, my little children for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you. Luke 6.40, a disciple's not above his teacher. Everyone who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher. 1 Corinthians 4.16, Paul says, I urge you to imitate me. Philippians 3.17, brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. Over and over, the Bible teaches that we're to find exemplary people and get around them and desire to be like them and imitate their life. If you're fat, follow a skinny person around and eat what they eat. Philippians 4, you look at me going, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Philippians 4, 9, things which you have learned and received and heard and saw in me do these things. First Thessalonians 1, 6, you became followers of us and of the Lord. 2 Thessalonians 3.9, not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example. First Timothy 1 Timothy 1.6 says that we have a pattern. 1 Timothy 4.12 says to let no one despise your youth, Timothy, but you be an example. Right? You know in your home, your kids are more likely to do what you do than they are to do what you say. And It's ideal if what you do and what you say are the same, but, but often they're not because we're human And and, and the times we're most disappointed in our children is often when they do what they've seen us do and not what we said. It's more powerful to be than it is to say, even though to say is very powerful. And so what I would would bring from this, and and I would bring it to you as a church at Bethel, and that is, here's a very powerful, very useful, very helpful aid in discipleship, aid in holiness, and that is... Who do you really admire and who do you really want to be like? Or what quality do you need and who do you know that has that quality and study that person and be like that person and ask the Holy Spirit to empower that effort to be like that person who is, who is exemplary because they're like Jesus in that way. And so it says in Hebrews 3, 7, Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God you, whose faith follow or whose example follow? First Peter Five, and verse three says to pastors, "The most powerful thing they can do is to be an example to the flock, to live in an exemplary way." On the other hand, it says, if you admire foolish people and we come dangerously close to doing that when we really feed on whatever the world gives us as if they don't have a godless philosophy behind what they're giving us, then we're companion of fools. When we admire what the world loves, when we admire what Satan loves, when we at like Proverbs 12:26, the Bible says we'll be destroyed. Proverbs 12:26, the righteous should choose his friends carefully, for the way of the wicked will lead him astray. If you're a young man or a young woman, this might be the most powerful thing you could ever hear today. And that is you should love everybody. You should be with everybody. But you should only admire as your closest associates that you have fellowship with, you should only admire people whose, whose lives are exemplary, who are, who are seeking God, who have the beauty and the purity of Christ upon them, who have the fragrance of Christ upon them. You don't need many friends. You need a few friends like that and you hang around them, you will become like the people that you admire. You will become like the people that you listen to. And that with admiration, of course. Proverbs twenty-two, twenty-four, 24 says, make no friendship with an angry man, with a furious man. Don't you shall not go. First Corinthians 5, 11 says, I told you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who's sexually immoral, covetous, or an idolater, a reviler, or a drunkard, extortioner. Don't even eat with such a person. Don't have fellow, so so in other words, we're in the world, we're around people who don't love the Lord, but we don't admire them. They They are the object of our love to win them to Christ. But the people that we admire will become like. I wrote this down, and it's probably something that might be helpful to you. You don't need many friends, but you do need these kinds of friends, three kinds of friends you need. You need friends who fear God and obey God. Just a few, maybe one or two, friends who fear and obey God. Listen, Psalm 119, 63. I'm a companion of all who fear you. You need friends who have a holy reverence for God. Second, you need friends who refresh you in the things of the Lord. This would be a good college roommate, right? 2 right. Timothy 1 16. The Lord grant mercy to the household of Anasaphorus, who often refreshed me. Can you imagine that? Uh, be, be the kind of person that spiritually refreshes another person and find people who are spiritually refreshing to hang around with. Those are the kinds of friends you want. Young man, listen. You want friends who fear God and obey Him, who refresh you in the things of the Lord. Number three, young ladies too, you need friends who will stimulate you to love and good works. Listen to Hebrews 10:24. Consider one another to stir up love and good works in one another. Those things I just said, you can find them on the website. This is how God works. So he inspires us and gives us concrete examples like he did with Timothy and Epaphroditus. And they also are exemplary. In other words, if I was gonna tell you the straightforward application of our passage today, I would just say this, choose really good examples and be really good examples. There's a lot of power in that. Choose good examples, be a good example. If you wanna influence others for Christ, be an example of what you want to say. If you want to be like Jesus, find somebody that's like him and admire that person. Now you might say, "Yeah, Pastor, I know that's true," but you don't understand. The governor keeps changing the rules. Or maybe you say, "But you don't understand. We have this president that I don't agree with." Or yeah, like we got one beep on that and no beeps on the other. Very interesting. Anyway, but you know we've got we've got. Uh, We've got, but hey, we've got we got a mess going on here. We have extraordinary times. We have we have uh, all kinds of infighting among people. We have division in our nation. We live in extraordinary times, and my answer to you would be: God always raises up ordinary people to do ordinary faithfulness to to accomplish extraordinary things in extraordinary times. So what if? Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of Christians just do what Christians are supposed to do. What if thousands upon thousands upon thousands of Christians just love one another? What if they give the gospel? There would be people who are ready to receive the gospel today. The Bethel wheel would move. The Jesus wheel would move. What if you invited somebody over to your home and you showed special love to them and you gave them something to eat and you listened to their heart and you prayed with them and you cared for them? There are people everywhere, even in these extraordinary times, no matter how many times the rules get changed, there are people to be reached for Christ. The wheel can turn and it can turn quickly no matter what happens. I, I heard this story about a pastor Who's called to a church in New York City, right about the time that the, that great uh, financial decline happened in 2008, and they had a big mortgage on a building that they had built, and he's in downtown New York City in a financial district with a huge building and a huge debt, and the whole thing comes—it's like he meets with his leaders, and he gives those leaders, in, and, and they tell him the numbers how much giving there is and how much giving has declined and how many people had to leave and move because of their jobs and how much the debt is and, 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 they, and, they, and they say, I think we're going to be okay and they started to use this term, if another shoe doesn't drop. If another shoe doesn't drop, the financial leaders tell the pastor, I think we can make it and then another shoe would drop and things would get worse and they would meet again And then it got to be a thing. After a while, they would say, well, I think we can tie a knot in this, and we can hang on, and we can make it as long as another shoe doesn't drop. But then another bad thing would happen. One day, the pastor was just overwhelmed. He was in his study, and he was thinking, I'm not a good enough leader to lead through this kind of a crisis. If another shoe drops, he says, God, just please don't let another shoe drop. This literally was his prayer. The pastor's at his desk. His head is down on his desk. He says to the Lord, please, Lord, don't let another shoe drop. And there's a knock on his door. And they say, the police are here. And he goes, well, just, that's great. So he goes down, and there are the New York City police standing there. And they say, Pastor, we know you have a homeless ministry here. And we just raided an illegal shoe operation And we have 700 boots, timberland, fake timberland boots that we'd like to donate to your homeless shelter if you'd like to have these shoes. And he just laughed. And church eventually paid off the debt. Listen, church. Listen, Bethel. Shoes keep dropping. Governors keep dictating new orders rules keep changing i know it's a little bit frustrating not knowing is sometimes worse than knowing something bad but the virus is not king jesus is king and the governor and the governor is not in charge jesus is in charge and the president is not in charge jesus christ is in charge and the circumstances are in the hands of a sovereign god the God of the universe and the progress of the gospel is the real news of the day. And that's what God cares about, and that's what God wants us to be involved in. No matter how powerful, no matter how what, no matter how powerful a person is, nobody's more powerful than God. No matter how dangerous a disease is, no one is greater than the great physician. This has not been our first trouble. This will not be our last trouble. But God in his heaven is not wringing his hands in despair. The Bible actually says that he's laughing at those who oppose him. And just when we don't think we can take another shoe dropping, he can use the shoes for his glory. If he has a few ordinary people, then the wheel will turn. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us, I pray, not to be frustrated, and discouraged, and give up in despair, but help us just to recognize we are ordinary people who serve an extraordinary God in difficult times. And I pray that you'd help us continue with an ordinary faithfulness to invite our neighbors to love one another, to encourage one another. Help us, I pray, deliver us from the foolishness of just building our own little creature comforts and our own little safe places and our own little kingdoms and doing nothing for the glory and for the kingdom of God. Help us to see forward, I pray, Lord, into the future to that day when you will reward the faithful for their faithfulness. Common men and common women and children, you'll reward us in an amazing way, in gifts that will never be taken away from us for whatever faithfulness that we have performed in this time. And help us, I pray, in that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.